A beginning is the time for taking the most delicate care that the balances are correct. This every sister of the Bene Gesserit knows. To begin your study of the life of Muad'Dib, then, take care that you first place him in his time. Born in the 57th year of the Padisha Emperor Shaddam IV, and take the most special care that you locate Muabdib in his place, the planet Arrakis. Do not be deceived by the fact that he was born on Kaladin and lived his first 15 years there. Arrakis, the planet known as Dune, is forever his place. Welcome back to another episode of Book Blurbs, everyone. In this episode, we're exploring a novel that's been lauded as science fiction's supreme masterpiece. A stunning blend of adventure and mysticism, environmentalism and politics, this book won the first ever Nebula Award, shared the Hugo Award, and formed the basis of what is one of the grandest epics of the genre. Arthur C. Clarke, the screenwriter for the 1968 film 2001 A Space Odyssey, and a winner of multiple Hugo and Nebula Awards himself that earned him the moniker of Prophet of the Space Age, said, quote, I know nothing comparable to it except Lord of the Rings. Hailed as, quote, one of the monuments of modern science fiction by the Chicago Tribune, this is Dune by Frank Herbert. Dune popped onto my radar with the new 2021 film adaptation that came out. And I'm the type of person, when it's a big property or franchise like this, I definitely want to try and read the original source material first and see how it compares to the new. And so... That's when I picked up uh, my friend's copy of Dune and jumped right into it. Uh, so let's learn a little bit about the author, Frank Herbert. And apologies if I stutter over his name, because coming from Louisiana, the way his last name is spelled, that's sometimes pronounced Abair, uh, where I'm from. And so I am constantly tempted to pronounce it as Frank Bear instead of Herbert, but I will do my best. So, Frank Patrick Herbert Jr. was born on October 8th, 1920 in Tacoma, Washington to Frank Patrick Herbert Sr. and Eileen Herbert. Frank Herbert spent a lot of his childhood exploring Olympic Peninsula and reading books. His love of reading enabled him to be able to read most of the newspaper before the age of five. With the time he spent out in nature, Herbert developed a fascination in photography and bought his first camera at the age of 10. He ran away from home in 1938 to live with an aunt and uncle in Salem, Oregon, and graduated from high school the next year. In 1939, he lied about his age to get a job for the Glendale Star newspaper. He returned to Salem in 1940, to work for the Oregon Statesman newspaper in a variety of positions, including photographer. 
Herbert married Flora Lillian Parkinson in San Pedro, California in 1941. They had one daughter, Penelope, on February 16th, 1942, before they divorced in 1943. He served in the Navy, Navy Seabees for six months as photographer after the United States entry into World War II, but he suffered an accidental head injury and was medically discharged. He then moved to Portland, Oregon, where he worked for the Oregon Journal. After World War II, Herbert attended the University of Washington. He met Beverly Ann Stewart in a creative writing class there in 1946. They married in Seattle, Washington on June 20th, 1946, and had two sons, Brian and Bruce. In 1949, the Herberts moved to California, where Frank worked for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. Frank met psychologists Ralph and Irene Slattery, who introduced him to numerous figures such as Freud, who would influence his writing going forward. They also familiarized him with Zen Buddhism. Herbert never graduated from university. According to Brian Herbert, he only wanted to study what interested him, so he never finished the required curriculum. He continued to work for newspapers and magazines, and he published his first science fiction story, Looking for Something, in the April 1952 issue of Startling Stories. In a 1973 interview, Herbert said he had been reading science fiction for about 10 years before he began writing in the genre citing H.G. Wells and Jack Vance as a couple of his favorite authors. Herbert kicked off his career as a novelist in 1955 with the serial publication of Under Pressure in Astounding, which was later issued as a book titled The Dragon in the Sea. The book predicted worldwide conflicts over oil consumption and production and was a critical success, but not a commercial one. Herbert began preparing and researching for Dune in 1959. Because his wife returned to full-time work as an advertising writer for department stores, Herbert was able to have a single-minded focus on his writing career. According to Herbert, the novel entered into his imagination when he was assigned to write about the Oregon Dunes near Florence, Oregon for a magazine. He was so fascinated by the sand dunes that he ended up with much more material than he needed for the article. He never actually wrote that article, but it served as the foundation for Dune. Herbert's hobby of cultivating psychedelic mushrooms also inspired aspects of the novel. It took Herbert six years of research and writing to complete Dune, which included reading over 200 books as background for the novel, according to Herbert, and it ended up being much longer than other commercially successful science fiction novels of the time. Sterling E. Lanier, an editor of Chilton Book Company had read Dune when it was being published as a serial and offered Herbert a $7,500 advance plus future royalties. Uh, 
Chilton Book Company, which primarily published auto repair manuals, considered Dune a write-off. The first printing was priced at $5.95, equivalent to $48.86 in 2020, and did not sell well at first and was received negatively overall by critics because it was atypical of science fiction at the time since Herbert deliberately suppressed technology in the novel so he could address the politics of humanity rather than its future with technology. Lanier was fired from Chilton, but the book gradually gained critical acclaim and popularity through word-of-mouth reviews. Herbert worked as an education writer for a Seattle newspaper, lecturer at the University of Washington, director of photography of a television show, and social and ecological consultant in Vietnam and Pakistan before he became a full-time fiction writer at the end of 1972. He divided his time between his home in Washington's Olympic Peninsula and Hawaii. He wrote five more novels in the Dune Saga and had plans to write a seventh novel to conclude the series, but he died before he could finish writing. Herbert's wife, Beverly, preceded him in death on February 7th, 1984. He married Teresa Shackleford in 1985 and died of a pulmonary embolism while recovering from surgery for pancreatic cancer on February 11, 1986, in Madison, Wisconsin, at the age of 65. His son, Brian, and Kevin J. Anderson would go on to write more novels in the Dune Saga based on his notes and story outlines. The Science Fiction Hall of Fame inducted Frank Herbert in 2006. I'm going to take a short break here, but when Book Blurbs returns, I'll bring in a special returning guest to discuss the novel itself. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Book Blurbs, everyone. In this episode, I'm discussing Frank Herbert's landmark 1965 science fiction novel, Dune. Dune is set in the distant future amidst a feudal interstellar society in which various noble houses control planetary fiefs under the leadership of the Emperor, the Spacing Guild, and the Bene Gesserit. It tells the story of young Paul Atreides, whose family accepts the stewardship of the planet Arrakis. While the planet is an inhospitable and sparsely populated desert wasteland, it is the only source of spice, an addictive drug that extends life and enhances mental abilities. Spice is also necessary for space navigation, which requires a kind of multidimensional awareness and foresight that only the drug Spice provides. As Spice can only be produced on Arrakis, control of the planet is a coveted and dangerous undertaking, and the factions of the Empire eventually face off for its resources. According to Brian Herbert's afterward at the end of Dune, His father spoke to him, quote, 
often of the importance of detail, of density, of writing. A student of psychology, he understood the subconscious and liked to say that Dune could be read on any of several layers that were nested beneath the adventure story of a messiah on a desert planet. Ecology is the most obvious layer, but alongside that are politics, religion, philosophy, history, human evolution, and even poetry. Dune is a marvelous tapestry of words, sounds, and images. Sometimes he wrote passages in poetry first, which he expanded and converted to prose, forming sentences that included elements of the original poems. Dad told me that you could follow any of the novel's layers as you read it, and then start the book all over again, focusing on an entirely different layer. At the end of the book, he intentionally left loose ends and said he did this to send the reader spinning out of the story with bits and pieces of it still clinging to them so that they would want to go back and read it again. One of the features that I most enjoyed about Dune was how Frank Herbert used his main character, Paul, as a warning about the dangers of following a charismatic leader. He doesn't shy away from showing the dark side of Paul, something other novelists can seem afraid to do with their chosen one protagonists. Going back to Brian Herbert's afterward, he writes, quote, Having studied politics carefully, my father believed that heroes made mistakes, mistakes that were simplified by the number of people who followed such leaders slavishly. In a dramatic death scene in the novel, a character remembers his father uttering, quote, No more terrible disaster could befall your people than for them to fall into the hands of a hero. There are so many great lines of dialogue like that in Dune, but one of my favorites has to be the litany against fear. And it goes like this. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. This litany derives from another one of my favorites, Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare. The line from that uh, play goes like this. A coward dies a thousand times before his death, but the valiant taste of death but once. It seems to me most strange that men should fear, seeing that death, a necessary end, will come when it will come. I'm going to pause here for a second and bring in our very special guest for this episode. So... Book Blurbs will be back in just a second. Welcome back to this episode of Book Blurbs, everyone. Today we are discussing Dune by Frank Herbert. And as promised, I've got our special guest here. You know him, you love him. He's been on the podcast before. Welcome back, Alex. Oh, I feel loved, Kenneth. Thank you for having me here. 
Alex, the reason I brought you back on is because you're the one that introduced me to the universe of Dune and told me that as a Star Wars fan, I had to go back and read this science fiction masterpiece published in 1965 because that's kind of the stepping stones for all of these big franchises. Yeah, that's right. So essentially what you had before to give you a backstory is that H.G. Wells sort of was the founder of the science fiction um, narrative, but that was based off of the industrial age. Dune gives us a peek into the space and universal size and grandeur of a of a complex science fiction we we can we'll be used to today. And it's a very different science fiction than its predecessors because I think when people hear the the term science fiction and think of the genre, like one of the first things that comes into their head is maybe man versus technology or how it's a story of how humans evolve with technology. But Frank Herbert did something really different because technology is not the centerpiece of this whole novel. In fact, there's this whole Butlerian jihad where they had a big war against the computers and machines and now there are no computers the humans are the computers the mintats and this is very fascinating um that's a that is an interesting backstory to dune um as well but let's start with this kenneth let's do like a 20 second sort of summary of what dune is and um no cheating okay uh yeah and go okay House Atreides is instructed by the Emperor to go to the desert planet of Dune. They are mortal enemies with House Harkonnen, who had the planet before them. Dune produces a substance called spice, which prolongs life and helps navigate space. Uh, Essentially, tragedy strikes, uh, and Paul Atreides, the main character, is forced to face his destiny on the desert planet and try and survive and use the desert planet to his advantage to essentially have a redemption revenge story and redeem his household. It's a lot more complicated than that. But um, Kenneth, I'm just going to read from the book I uh, lended you, the 40th anniversary edition, which has an afterword by Brian Herbert, which is Frank Herbert's son. You just said no cheating. (laughs) No, I will cheat on this case. But on the back here, here's a very quick uh, summary. Here's a novel that will be forever considered a triumph of the imagination. Set on the desert planet Arrakis, Dune is the story of the boy Paul Atreides who would become the mysterious man known as the Mordip. He will avenge the traitorous plot against his noble family and will bring to fruition humankind's most ancient and unattainable dream. A stunning blend of adventure and mysticism, environmentalism, and politics. Dune won the first Nebula Award, shared the Hugo Award, and formed the basis of what is undoubtedly the grandest epic in science fiction. By the way, Kenneth, Arthur C. Clarke said, nothing is comparable to it except maybe Lord of the Rings. Yeah. That's a good summary for me. Do you know who Arthur C. Clarke is? Well, of course. Did we do an episode on that yet? No. So that, um, Arthur C. Clarke is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, screenwriter. Um, Screenwriter, who then wrote a book of it after the novel. which and I, a sequel. Which I guess Quentin Tarantino did with Once Upon a Time of Hollywood. So that is not that is not uncommon. But <laughs> yeah, so that is uh, um, sort of the summary of Dune. Interesting tidbit that I learned from Brian Herbert's afterward from this book. Uh, can you guess who Frank 
saw himself as most in among the characters, like who he relates to the most. Would it be like Gunnar Halleck or... No, that's a good guess, though. Or Duncan Idaho or... No, it's Stilgar from the Fremen. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. Um, speaking of the characters, a lot of memorable ones. Uh, name one or two of the characters that really stick out to you. Well, the one that stuck out to me is going to be the villain, of course. Oh, <laughs> Theron. Well, that's it, it is because so um, Vladimir Vladimir Harkonnen or Harkonnen, as they say in the in the um, new movies. Uh, I guess that's debatable in how to pronounce it. But what what I find fascinating in this situation, in terms of a villain, is if you are the father of science fiction for let's say space dial and space travel type science fiction, how you're essentially also the forerunner of what it means to be a villain in a galactic scale and no one had to write that before. Uh And so this is sort of, this is sort of, I think to me, Vladimir Harkonnen is the grandfather of the villain that never wants to stop its growth and control beyond galactic scales. And so I think this is where it all starts. Um, he's very gluttonous in well, terms of like also just the the regular gluttony of food, but also his his gluttony of power. And well, control. yeah. So then that, that's why he's very large. And actually, kid, if you haven't gotten to the the next novel, there's a reason why he is large. But um, we won't we won't spoil that one for you. Audience, don't spoil it for him either. <laughs> the but. The Baron being this sort of pale with lesions on his faces and with that, like as Kenneth said, the sort of gluttony is personified in his massiveness. He is also, he's also somewhat physically lazy. That's part of this sort of, it's almost like a, he's almost, Frank Herbert's almost got the sort of Catholic sins traits on him. The gluttony, the pride. The um, what would be some of the other ones that the Baron exhibits? Envy, There's envy. Envy is yeah, the start of this whole thing. <laughs> um, envy is why he attacks House Atreides from the first place. Um, so Frank Herbert, I think, knowing that he is establishing a new type of villain that we don't see in a novel before, he really went to a very primitive place. And that's what makes the Baron such an understandable and relatable villain, because it is very basic. He wrote them so well, too, because unlike maybe modern novels where you get the whole backstory of the villain and, like, the author almost makes you try to feel bad for them or try and understand them in a way, Frank Herbert's just like, Vladimir's a bad guy. Like, (laughs) this is who he is. And funny enough, he's still relatable in that regard. No, you don't feel bad for him, but it, he's a character that is as equally as someone you want to dedicate your time to as Paul is and as Chani. You know, these other characters. I said Chani, she's not even in the book. but She is. Uh, not in not in. TV You're thinking of the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Uh, yeah. He's so well written for the villain. Like... He's not in the book as much as, uh, like, let's say, Paul or, like, Lady Jessica, but... Uh, that would be your two most 
yeah, those are your main character protagonists. But my gosh, the chapters when you read about the Baron, like they're some of the most thrilling and like page turning chapters of the book. Uh, just because like you're like stuck on every single word he's saying or like how brutal or harsh he's being. It's like really entertaining. Um, so it almost like Frank Herbert just he simplified this and said, let's just make an evil guy that has envy, that has gluttony and jealousy. And you can make something so compelling from that that it's sort of a lesson to modern authors. Simplify your work. Get what's basic about why villains are villains and heroes are heroes. And you're listing all these like sins and saying how he's lazy and his physicality, but he's still a very intimidating figure. And his physicality doesn't take away from the fact that he's really smart too. Like he's doing all of this political maneuvering throughout the novel. And he's able to inflict all this chaos and turmoil essentially by keeping his hands clean and not getting dirty himself for the most part until it finally catches up with him uh, at a certain point. So from leading back to this concept that this is a first story of his kind and the Baron is the first villain of his kind, I would like to predate or, or find the predecessor to that, which when you look at the science fiction before that the villains were not people in any of those they're aliens machines the mm -hmm. earth the world collide when world collide it, that was written 30 years prior before that before that um time machine by hd these aren't people that you're these villains are so frank herbert reintroduced the hero's journey the notion of hero versus villain all that and integrated it into this science fiction that's now a new sort of narrative. And so that Baron is equally as important to, to what we owe all science fiction to um, from this story. Well, that's another thing that's different from other sci-fi novels. Uh, you mentioned aliens. There really are no aliens in this book. I mean, everyone we read about. They're, they're humans. humans that evolved in different places and stuff, but they all they have, have a, their own cultures. Yeah. But I mean, I guess the closest you could come is the sandworms on Dune. And that's just an animal. Yeah. Oh, let's talk about that. You cannot <laughs> talk about Dune. That's the first thing everyone thinks about or pictures in their head when they, they hear the word Dune. Now, fascinatingly enough, and, and this is talking about the physical book here, the 40th anniversary edition actually does not have a sandworm on it. I believe the original cover had Paul standing on a Dune with a sandworm. Mm -hmm. Now... I think that's because when, if you think about in the 60s, that cover would definitely make you look twice on a bookshelf, but you don't need that now, I guess. But we do know the sandworm exists. It's in this story. You don't need it on the cover. Yeah, the sandworm is such a fascinating, um, massive creature that it's symbolic with this notion of the desert planet. And Frank Herbert did such an incredible job explaining how massive and terrifying these things are through different sort of stuff. There's different parts of the story that sort of clarifies that point. Yeah, that's what's great about it. You you start by looking at these sandworms as just um, brainless monsters that are to be feared. Uh, but then as you go on in the story, like you come to see them in a different light. And it's really impressive. 
they're worshipped by the people on the planet. Which so and we talked about this, and we'll get to the movie adaptation, but we talked about this with the notion of worshiping implies sometimes fear and sometimes worship implies subordinates to something mm-hmm. that part of worship and so by frank herbert setting the freeman as a cult that or the people of dune that not only respects but worships the sandworm it basically reinforced the sandworm is to be feared is to be respected and it is as massive <laughs> as he's writing it yeah <laughs> And it's great. It's, it's one of the... the Speechless, standouts. as Kenneth is going to say at the moment. <laughs> Speechless. Um, Just like the same worm. And you mentioned worshipping and religion. And one of my favorite factions of the novel are the Bene Gesserit. And Lady Jessica, I think, might be my favorite character to read. Spoiler, uh, you're going to hate them later. Okay. <laughs> Just like many religions. <laughs> But they're all about this prophecy of this one male uh, son. Would you like to say the title? It's the Quisat Haderach. <laughs> it's a great word. And actually, Kenneth, while you explain that, in this 40th anniversary book, there's a dictionary. Yeah, there's I'm a... curious what uh, Frank Herbert describes this as. So essentially the Bene Gesserit are one of the main factions that are in power in this universe. And... Their goal is to selectively breed until they are able to produce this. Quisatotorok. Yes. So here's here's what Frank Herbert described it as. Um, shortening of the way. Now, the way with the Ben Gesserit notion of their master plan, et cetera, et cetera. But this is the label applied by the Ben Gesserit to the unknown for which they sought a genetic solution. A male Ben Gesserit whose organic mental powers would bridge space and time. Now, why is male stress? Because Ben Gesserits are only females. All females. And just like there are Mentats who are trained to be as accurate and precise as computers with their thinking, the Bene Gesserit have a school where all these females go to to be trained in these kind of ancient ways uh, one of my favorite things in the book and especially the movie, the new movie is they're trained in the voice, uh, which is a way they it's hypnotism. Yeah. They control you or persuade you to do whatever they tell you to do. George Lucas read this and this is where the force comes from. Just <laughs> saying this yeah. is where it comes from. And then I would be remiss if I did not mention Dune itself as like, I see the planet as a character in the novel. It's living, it's breathing. People are trying to influence it in different ways. House Harkonnen wants to turn it in. Yeah, they talk to Dune as a character, like yeah, the control of Dune. Dune, my Dune. Oh, when the Baron says, <laughs> when the De- Baron says, my, my desert, my Dune. Okay, that implies Dune as a character. Yeah, and so House Harkonnen wants to to control it and turn it into essentially like a prison planet. Um the emperor of course wants to continue using it to produce spice and therefore revenue uh the fremen want to change it from a desert planet into this vibrant uh green planet that has water and they want to completely transform it so all these different factions and people are trying to 
shape Dune to their will. So that introduced House Atreides. So the leader of the House Atreides for the beginning of the Duke of Leto. This, I love Duke uh, Leto. Duke Leto. He sees Dune not as an opportunity, but as sort of the obstacle as part of House Atreides' path. I guess he he sees it not as revenue. He sees it not as a um, sort of a stepping stone to power. He sees it as simply growth for the House Atreides to to increase their influence because they believe in influence through peace. Mm-hmm. And so peace and alliance, he thinks it's a challenge that I can turn Dune into a stepping stone to peace. Unlike all these other um, factions. And that's a, that's a massive challenge undertaken. <laughs> and in fact, he's different than the other houses that have governed the planet because they go there and they immediately think, think of, of the, and spice. See the spice. Whereas when he goes there, he tells Paul, we have to focus on desert power and he's implying that they need to form an alliance and with bond the Freeman. With the Freeman, yeah. So, so that's basically the book. Now, it's the, been notoriously difficult for this novel to be successfully adapted to the screen, wouldn't you say? So that I think that's going to be the bulk of this discussion because um, I think you've mentioned before you talked about in your previous episode what Dune is, Frank Herbert. Um, but let's take it to the next step. How do you convert the grandfather of science fiction to the latest science fiction movie? Um, well, I would say I would have not done a good job. I don't <laughs> think Kenneth would have done a good job. But Denise Villanueva, which is funny because Kenneth speaks Spanish more than I do, and I think I can pronounce his name better. He's um, French. <laughs> oh. <laughs> He is French. Everyone, he is French. Do not quote me on this. But um, I think what he's done was he read this book. He read this novel. He probably read it 70 times. He read every variation of it. He read the 40th anniversary of it. And I think what he did is he closed the book. I take it back. He's Canadian. Okay. Um, Which is partly French. Yeah. Um, I think he read this. He absorbed it. He closed the book put it to the side and didn't look at the book again. And that's what it takes to make this, this movie. I think the other thing that helped Denis was he was a fan of it. He knew the property, the material, and he talks all the time. Like I, I think I saw an interview with him and Colbert and he started reading Dune at age 14 that's impressive. Yeah. This is not, again, this is not an easy novel for some people to read, especially me. But See, um, I would fight back against that a little bit, though, because I, for the longest time, especially after you gave me this copy and I flipped to the back and saw, oh, my gosh, there's a dictionary. <laughs> they need a dictionary for this book. And then there's all these different appendices okay okay this is the predecessor to infinite jest I, oh i'm just gonna gosh. someday we'll talk about <laughs> we'll that work one. our way up to that yeah this is the predecessor <laughs> to infinite jest if no one Alex knows has that, been wanting me to read infinite jest david foster wallace in the 90s but we'll get to maybe that maybe that will be the final episode ever of book blurbs <laughs> uh, no so i saw all of that stuff and but it helps it does but <laughs> I actually, it's so well written that I didn't really need to constantly flip back there like I was worried I would. So do you think it's well written and part of, so to give you an interesting backstory, 
Parts of Doom Messiah, which is the sequel, was written before Dune. Really? Yes. Um, Son of Dune, there were parts of the paragraph that was written before Dune as well. I think what happened was Frank Herbert, um, you know, you probably covered this, but he had his concept of Dune for, for looking at literal dunes of sand. Yeah. And Which what, I've been to, by the way. Uh, well, we've Oregon. been to. Well, uh, oh, to that one. But yeah, we've yeah. been to White Sands, yeah. which basically looks like this. But, Luckily, um, White Sands is much cooler and not as hot yeah. as Dune. But um, I think Frank Herbert, so Doom Messiah, he's got some narrative that he came up with there. I think what happened was he knew he was entering brand new literature that was never done before. And so he had to step back. And like I said before, he had to figure out how to simplify this. There was no way you can bring someone into science fiction on a galactic scale and also make it a hard read. That's just unfair. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's why he stepped back, wrote, rewrote parts of it, and did essentially the origin of his original narrative, which was Doom Messiah. And that's, I think, is why I think for some people it was a good read. It was a very fluid read, I guess. Yeah, very much a page turner. I like that he balances... I would call them like hard elements of science fiction with soft elements like religion and prophecies and all these different things. Um, Which I guess was another way of him showing that science fiction, like all literature, is still based off of some sort of human reality and experience. And that helps us get into what this new narrative style is. Yeah. So going back to the... Is it yeah, so the movie. 2021 or 2020? Oh, uh, it's 2020. 2021. COVID. But um, <laughs> if, if you're listening to this five years from now, this was the COVID year. But in 2021, so um, Denise, like this you're saying. This is such was, a massive project. This movie only covers the first half of the first book. Denise plans to do a part two to finish the first book. Which was greenlit as the moment of this recording. And then... Ideally, he'd like to do part three as Dune Messiah, which is the sequel book. Which is also greenlit. As... Wow. <laughs> so Warner Bros. basically this... said the trilogy will happen. Yeah, this was a big success at the box office, I think. Which Especially I... since the COVID situation. Yeah, and I'm very happy because... <laughs> <laughs> it's a good movie. I would have been so upset if we saw this part one and then never got a part two or even part three. I think the part one was added into the title sequence after the green lit, <laughs> just to make sure. So Alex, what do you see as the challenges of adapting this book to film? Well, I think we were talking about during your sponsor commercial break. Um, one of them definitely, how do you pronunciate these words in this story? But you definitely have to stick, as a director, you have to stick with it, um, What how you're going to pronounce these things. That's a joke. But the biggest thing is, what do you do to get the essence of the story and be able to tell this story without all the details and the nitty gritty stuff you cannot cover in a two and a half hour runtime. And that's why I still believe that um, the director read this enough time. He closed the book and I don't think he referred to it during this the process because he was coming from the sort of remembering what was important remembering the main key point. Obviously, he referred to the book with dialogue, but being able to recapture from when he was 14 or so to now, 
the essence of Dune. Um, Kenneth, what would you say would be the if you were to create this sort of movie? What what would be the main things you would try to capture? I think all of the political maneuvering is very hard to capture, but if it's done well, then it can be so engaging and so how do you capture like i would think you capture that with you can definitely capture in dialogue but you can definitely capture it with emotional their emotional gravitas by actors and actresses in certain scenes how they react to each other Mm -hmm. and how they react to certain situation you can capture a lot in just those sort of style yeah the way they react to things presented to them. I'm, I'm trying to say it broadly so I don't spoil either the movie or the book. Um, it would be kind of hard to spoil a book that's, you know, 400-something pages long because there's a lot going on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, there were some things about the movie when I first saw it, I was like, I can't believe they left out the dinner party scene when they arrive on Arrakis. But what that it- was so, when I read the book, I was like, that was so ingrained in my memory because it was written in a way that it was so tense and I was kind of on the edge of my seat. I remember reading it Which? in the airport and I was oh like, my God. I was like, don't tell me to board my flight yet. I have to finish reading about this dinner party. Hold your plane. <laughs> no. So that's an interest. So to talk about conversions of narratives to, to movie, if it's written so well with that amount of tense um, sort of rigor, a good director can look at that and go, I can't compete with that. So maybe you can't just directly copy that. Maybe you just can't. And so that I think I think I enjoy that you say is such intense scene. Maybe the director couldn't find a way to get that into this sort of movie. And then we already talked about the the wealth of characters in the book. I think it's really hard. That's one of the challenges of putting Dune on the screen is you only giving have a all of these time. characters enough time to shine. And I, I told you when we watched this new movie, I felt like a couple of characters kind of didn't have the development they needed. Um, and I wonder if part of that is the studio telling Denis, like, hey, you only have this much time for the movie. or Is there a director's cut, do you think? There has to be, right? I know there's, like, deleted scenes and, like, scripts that have parts left out. Let's see if that's worth... Let's see if that runtime would capture what what we're talking about but then again you've already got like part two and part three coming so okay i want to talk about that i want to talk about that part so there are there are major i think implications of taking things out i i definitely know for a fact okay this is sort of my this is my mentat ability to see in the future but Having the Emperor completely devoid in the movie in any possible way except in dialogue by others, I think was important because, one, they didn't cast the guy yet. But, two, Denise understands, the director understands, his importance really does get elevated in the later parts of a narrative in Doom Messiah. So might as well give the movies the sort of simple fluid approach that pe- because the movies i think were made partly for people that never even read dune mm-hmm. so that allows this is their introduction yeah that allows 
the the sort of visual way of telling the story of Dune. Um, I think Denise is letting that actually be what it is naturally, and that that's part of not having the Emperor in there. But also, also my favorite faction, the Spacing Guild, is not really mentioned at all in this. Now, you do see their ships like two or three times in the beginning and the end of a story. And what was your biggest critique after watching it? Okay, well, I'll, I'll talk <laughs> about that. But um, the Spacing Guild is so fundamental to the idea of spice being the economy because they run on spice. Their navigators have to have spice to be able to pilot these spaceships. Imagine safely. their Mentats, which are human com- computers. Imagine those are people drunk on spice and elevated to such a hyper-realistic mind worldview that they they drive massive ships using just their brains. Um, but I'm glad they he skipped them out because that would have muddled, you know, two and a half hour run there's, time. There's too many factions. They're important there. later. They will become important. So might as well just introduce them when they become important. Um, we do see their ships. So it's not like we're going to be thrown out of a curveball when the ships start almost for something. But anyway, so <laughs> that's, I think, was the director's really good way of just sort of t- converting this into a, a movie and simplifying for an audience half for the people that read it and half for the people that never heard of it. I think that was a good sort of compromise let's be honest too another difficult part of adapting dune to film there are some trippy parts in okay the book. so so <laughs> like... the gamja bar right so so when paul atreides the main character is faced with trials and tribulations through a mental sort of thing by the mother of the bin guest or the mother the reverend, reverend mother. i don't want to get into what happens there because it could be spoiler but they that's his humanity yeah so that scene in the movie was a sort of a five second where where the transition into that pain threshold was much quicker in the movie um timothy chalamet did a good job of sort of showing that as an actor um because visual a picture says a thousand words right (laughs) and so that is a benefit of a movie you can simplify the two-page description of that scenario into a five-second situation in a movie. Mm-hmm. Now, was he crawling through the desert in the scene, sort of like a visual, like in the Jam Gabar situation? Was he like crawling towards the Reverend Mother through a sort of a hyper-realist landscape of the desert and all that? Was that the situation? My interpretation of that was him unlocking this part of him that he didn't know. Was but did, was he before. having was he having hallucinations? And I don't recall too much of. Are you talking about in the in book? the book? Oh, it doesn't really talk about that. It just talks about how much pain he's in. Okay, I, I feel like okay, that would make sense. But um, that is a benefit of a movie that you're able to simplify just with actions of the of the person's face and reactions, and then the Reverend Mother's reaction and how she holds the the needle next next to his neck, and that's pretty scary. But um, so, so cool, and it's at the beginning of the book, and it's one of the things that instantly hooks you. Such a great opening. I think it happens in the opening chapter um, because then in chapter two, you're introduced to the Baron. So, yeah, so Paul sat up and hugged his knees. What's a Gamjabar? Yeah. He's literally on page five. (laughs) And then Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Moem uh, is sitting at the chair. So, this is in the first few books. Now, Quinn Tarantino talked about this. 
the benefit of a novel is it doesn't have to happen in order. Now, that is true for a movie too, but in a novel, you can truly jump around, I think, in certain ways because of how you want to introduce and hook a character. And like Kenneth said, Frank Herbert believes that that scene would be the thing to hook a reader, whereas for the movie, the visual spectacle of a desert planet the visual spectacle of being introduced to the planet mm-hmm. was how you're going to get hooked in the movie because that's a visual stimuli. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, By the then, way, the spacing goat, I, I, do, I, I have to go back to this. I have a complaint. I have a complaint. So um, it's not really a spoiler, but the, the navigators operate large ships. Um, these large ships are so massive that you cannot physically move them. Therefore, you have to move space-time around the ship, a sort of a warp drive. Now, what this means is when they punch in the coordinates, I say punch in, it's mentally, when they punch in the coordinates, they go to exactly where the coordinates is, and that's where the ship is. Mm -hmm. The concept of the ship orbiting a planet does not exist. Because the ship cannot be physically altered in any way. It alters everything else. Now, in the, in the movie, it appears, either through parallax effect or something, it appears that these ships, um, they orbit the planet. There's some movement to them. And I guess that's okay, because that's a very complex concept that you're not going to introduce because you haven't even introduced the space and guild. So I understand that. Now, the ship still looks super cool. The ships look cool. It's very impressive. It is very impressive. Now, I think in part two and part three, because you have to be introduced to the space and guild, I think they'll talk about that. And I think the parallax effect, the parallax effect will be removed because at that point, okay, that makes sense why they don't move. Something else I'm interested to see how he tackles, especially in part two, because in this part of the book there's so many psychedelic trips like the water of life ceremony which is going to essentially be the start of part two uh for the films man and paul takes a big risk drinking the water yeah because it may do things to paul that does not do to the other ben guessers paul essentially has this special power called prescience where he can look into the future and that's what's sets him on the path of becoming this messiah figure uh so really interested to see how denis portrays that and it's it's interesting because he said in interviews he's only considering making films up through dune messiah because after dune messiah the books just get a little too weird i, to I make think into he, a he, film. Res- he respects that these narratives are in written form and they're in written form for a reason because there are certain things that can be done in that medium versus in a movie. And I think he completely respects that. Um, Frank Herbert was apparently not on weed yet when he wrote the first two books. So I, th- <laughs> so I think that's what allows him. Now, but there are still some crazy scenes in there that I think is going to be fascinating to see what Denise does with them. Um, I don't think they're complicated scenes. I just think you don't want to be distracted by the rest of the narrative plot moving forward. 
Mm-hmm. You don't want these things filling up an entire movie like it did with The Matrix recently. But <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole different podcast episode. There's a lot of flashbacks, so <laughs> it, it can be distracting. In that, you have to be careful because in a in a in a movie, you're from point A to point B. In a book, you can stop reading it, go back three pages, reread it if you got distracted, and sort of reassess yourself right on, on what you just read. In a in a in a movie, it's a little harder to press the rewind button. So I think that's what Denise have to be careful with those scenes. Yeah. So wrapping things up here, <gasps> I we're have, gonna wrap things up. We are. <laughs> I have my own special rating system, as you know. Best to worst. Is... Wait, this is gonna be so obvious. <laughs> I know, but we we're gonna to do it. it anyway. Bookshelf worthy by library, Spark Notes, or Pass. I think we both agree that Dune is bookshelf worthy. Not, not only is it bookshelf worthy, it's in one of those glass containers that you put on the top shelf. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, do you agree with that one? Yeah. Because yeah, once you I would, read it, you don't have to open it again. I would splurge on a collector's edition for this book. Do they have a hard... I'm sure they have hard covers. Oh, I sent Kenneth a picture of a... Um, um, there's a 2021 edition of Dune, and it's gorgeous because it's in this psychedelic teal and blue colors with magenta. Oh yeah, and it's and I think that sort of captures the um, the, the psychedelic visions that Paul was having. Yeah, Dune really surprised me. I think with its rich setting, page turning writing, and memorable characters, it certainly earns its countless accolades and awards, and it's really easy for me to see now how it influenced major sci-fi properties like star wars alex thank you for coming back on the podcast after all these episodes I, I, of course always and we'll have to have you back on maybe we can both read dune messiah next and talk about that oh gosh okay give me some time <laughs> all right see you guys we're going down the rabbit hole Thank you for listening to this episode of Book Blurbs, and thank you again to Alex for joining the podcast. I invite you to jump onto social media and follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter at BookBlurbs19. You can also send an email to BookBlurbs19 at gmail.com, and you can record a voice message at www.anchor.fm slash bookblurbs. Please do me a favor and leave a rating for book blurbs on whichever podcasting platform you're using to help grow the podcast and reach a wider audience. I've looked at some of the uh, reports from the audience metrics and we're actually reaching some international listeners, including from the UK and Australia. So thank you for listening uh, from those countries as well. I'm your host, Kenneth, and I'll catch you on the next episode of book blurbs.